Hello folks, welcome to another SACPA session. SACPA acknowledges that this event takes place on the lands of the Blackfoot people and Métis Nation of Alberta Region 3. And we pay respect to their past, present and future cultural heritage, beliefs and relationship to the land. SACPA commits to assist reconciliation efforts by raising awareness of the ways past and present injustices can be reconciled. Today, we're very happy to have with us Dr. Samuel Duval, or Duvala, if I want to say it in total Dutch fashion. Um, welcome, for, uh, welcome and thank you for joining us. Dr. Samuel uh, Duvala is a family physician living and working since 2013 in Lethbridge, Alberta. He graduated from Calvin University in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and then the University of Calgary Medical School before completing his residency in rural family medicine in Southern Alberta. He's the outgoing president of the Family Medicine Clinic in Lethbridge, a board member of the Chinook Primary Care Network, a civil aviation medical examiner, and a medical school clinical lecturer. And I will say also that all options stated are his alone and do not represent any other business or institution. Thanks very much for joining us, and we very much look forward to your talk. Uh, yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me. I want to uh, thank the organization for giving me the opportunity to talk on this subject. Uh, you know, when I was preparing this, so, you know, we have a, a, a title for this talk, but the thing I wrote on the top of my notepad was the death of family medicine. It was a little more succinct, uh, maybe overdramatic, but um, it does kind of play into the reason that this is uh, an important moment in not just uh, Lethbridge's history here in terms of uh, healthcare, but probably Alberta more broadly. Um, and the, um, you know, to back up a little bit, uh, those are a, a list of things that I do. Most of what I do is, is family practice. I am a doctor who sees you when you come in sick for some reason in your medical clinic. And that's what a lot of people think of as their physicians. There's lots of different sorts of us though, but that's what I'm going to be focusing on. The family practice element, the primary care practice of, of medicine in Lethbridge. Uh, so when we give talks in medicine, we want to go through disclosures that everyone who has a medical background knows, you know, if they are at a conference, they'll, they'll have, um, the first slide saying disclosures i'm paid lots of money by this organization or that organization so you should either trust what i say or not uh i i don't have any disclosures i i i, uh, I talked to many different individuals and uh, organizations trying to get opinions and and data uh but if i made an error with that uh with anything i tell you here today that error is mine um i would ask that uh, you know i should run this by a lawyer can i say that by continuing to listen you consent to uh not being angry at me and relinquishing ability to get me in trouble uh like i don't want anyone getting uh, communicating with a, an organization i'm associated with saying oh that dual did something this is all you know just on me or you know going as far to talk to you know canadian tire to get me because i connect you know I, I use canadian tire money and use that and uh, anyway any mistake is mine, and uh, I, I can't emphasize that enough. So what are we really talking about here, and, and, and where do I start, and how do I focus in? So when, when I was asked to do this um, 
physicians thinking objectively a lot want to present data. We want to present, you know, experiment type things. We want a control group and we're just not going to be able to do that here. So I struggled with this for a while. Uh, and then I just bumped into a mentor of mine who who taught me in residency and I kind of explained what I was thinking about here. He said, oh, don't do that. Not, not everything has to be a randomized control trial. Just tell your story. I thought, well, that's, I can do that. Anyone can do that and I'll do that. And uh, so why might you want to hear it? Uh, I mean, it's, it's complex. I, I know people want to hear it because I'm asked about it five to ten times a day, it feels like. Uh, and by doing this, I hope to give people a peek behind the curtain of what's going on here. And the reason for that is that 45%, roughly, of our city of about 100,000 people, or a small city, uh, does not have a family doctor, does not have a place to go. Uh, a clinic that they can call their home and, and and people deserve to know why. Why is that? Because that didn't used to be the case. Uh, so I'll tell my story. I, I don't know at the end that I would have like a slide that says, and these are my conclusions and this is where to go from there. Uh, ultimately, I, I think maybe you can glean something uh, from what I talk and, and, and draw some conclusions yourself more or less. So the uh, getting into a little bit of the details, um, I was a little bit perturbed to talk to some members of government who were not really aware of how many family doctors there are doing primary care. Uh, they had to be informed by us, even though they're making decisions before talking to us based on information that seemingly they didn't have. Uh, but the numbers of physicians doing primary care has 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 dropped quite a bit recently. Uh, at the end of uh, 2019 and into 2020, there were about 88 uh, doctors who do you know more or less what I do here in town uh, by the end of 2021 that number was at 69 and that number is dropping further um, I'm getting asked daily uh, by several people to take them on to take their family members on the hospitals are discharging babies to nobody right uh, you know there's long-term care um, uh, organizations trying to find someone to, to watch your grandma you know uh, and, and struggling to do so. So um, I'll try to zoom in and out on the big picture and the small picture a little bit as we go. Uh, the going backwards in time as well, I was tempted to go back all the way to Ralph Klein, but you know, I wasn't really there and I'm not going to do that to you. But really since, uh, since problems in the past, there have been a slow building in primary care in being able to access a family doctor here in Lethbridge and, and more broadly as well. So uh, roughly, you know, when, when I graduated in residency, there were still um, pieces of paper in the front of the emergency room. These are doctors who would take you on and there was maybe one or two names or no names on that list. And uh, as time went on, that list began to get longer. And so somewhere between 2014 and 2016, we were at a place in Lethbridge where if you wanted to have a family doctor, you could have one. There were consistently people accepting new patients and uh, so much so that people would move from one physician to another because that clinic was closer to their house or some other uh, cause. The, the communities in the area uh, more rurally had more physicians as well. Uh, it's, it's important to notice that we never found a, what's called a medical home which is a term that I really like, uh, for everyone in, in town. At best, we got down to about uh, 10,000 people in Lethbridge not having a family doctor. Um, but the, the, the resources were there. Furthermore, we had, as, as in my clinic, we had the ability to run 10 evening or urgent care clinics uh, in a week. In, in uh, per week in, in two different locations. We had about 20 to 23 physicians at any given time. 
So at that point, we're at 88 physicians. And it's, it's important to step back and say, you know, why is this important? Why, why should I care about this? Uh, there's a lot of different reasons for an individual wanting to be able to have their kids seen if they have an ear infection. That's important to you. Uh, from a more systemic perspective, you know, healthcare, most healthcare, most healthcare encounters are in primary care. They're in rooms like uh, I'm sitting in right now. Uh, there's also a lot of evidence from a systemic standpoint about how important this is. Uh, primary care, robust primary care, uh, is associated with improved access to health care more broadly. Uh, it's associated with improved health outcomes, decreased illness, decreased uh, mortality across the population. Uh, robust primary care and that system is in place is associated with fewer hospitalizations. It's uh, associated with fewer emergency room visits. Uh, to some degree, although not a complete degree, it is able to negate some of the uh, social and environmental aspects of, of health that are very important. You know, poverty, accessibility, these sorts of things. And obviously, nothing is ideal for that, but it, it, it does make a difference. And there's there's research to to state that that is the case. Uh, in the recent uh, throne speech, uh, Premier Kenny said, "Well, we need to get more bang for our buck from the healthcare system." Uh, I mean, if that's the case, we need to be talking about primary care. Uh, nobody ever talks about primary care. It's not the most interesting form of medicine to a lot of people. We like talking about ICU beds. We like talking about how fast you get a knee replacement, man, and that's fine. Uh, but primary care needs to be into that uh, into that discussion for very important reasons. So here we are. We're uh, 2018, 2019. We're sitting at about 88 physicians here. We're able to do all these different things. In the background, in the end of 2019, we start hearing rumblings of coronavirus. Uh, so for those of us who are paying attention, there's this virus uh, abroad, uh, early indications say it's got a mortality rate of between one and 3.5%. Uh, those numbers sound small to, to, to someone not in medicine, they sound horrifying to someone in medicine because of the transmissibility being so, so high. And um, that has a bit of a chilling effect on, on people. And so as I talk about other things, political things, just remember that that's kind of in the background. That's, you know, first conceptually and then very much in, in practice. And, and we all know where we are with that now, but, um, the 2019 comes around, and this is still the, the big picture here in Alberta. Uh, the, the government of Alberta um, creates or, or asks for this uh, report they call a Blue Ribbon Panel, uh, the McKinnon Blue Ribbon, Blue Ribbon Panel report. I don't really know what the Blue Ribbon stands for other than, you know, take this really seriously. This, this panel has a blue ribbon on it, so it's extra important, extra special. Uh, and in that panel in, in there, the, there's a narrative that started, you know, doctors in Alberta are overpaid. And you see that being caught uh, or taken up by some of the right-wing columnists. And uh, so it's a bit of table setting for what's come next, uh, coming next. And so in October of 2019, the government uh, tables a uh, bill called Bill 21. And this is really important. And this is what physicians have been talking about uh, at length amongst ourselves for a long time. In Bill 21, the government gave itself the right to unilaterally terminate an agreement or contract with physicians. Uh, it also gave themselves the right so to, to say in any theoretical future contract that was signed, the government would have the right to extricate itself from it unilaterally. Um, and so when I, when I talk with people, I said, well, you know, let's say you're working um, for an organization doing whatever it is you do. And, and the organization says, you know, that contract you signed, we can change that with without running that by you at any time. Is that OK? 
probably most people are not really okay with that. It, it, it's, uh, it's, it would have a bit of a chilling effect. At that time, the government was also talking about taking control of where you could uh, practice. So if you graduated uh, from a medical school here in Alberta, they were saying, well, you can only practice in these four areas, uh, but we have enough physicians in these other areas. So conceptually, that makes some sense. That's been tried in other provinces and not found to be particularly effective, but the government was talking about going that way. Now, meanwhile, the, the contract between Alberta physicians and the government it was expiring, you know, and uh, there was negotiations between the Alberta Medical Association, which is, you know, represents physicians, and the government um, in February of 2020. Um, mediation to create a new agreement had failed at that point, but there had been an agreement to continue negotiation until February 29th, however, on February 20th, 2020, the uh, the government used their newfound powers and terminated that agreement, uh, the master agreement between Alberta physicians and the only employer we can actually work for, which is the government. Uh, we didn't get any notice of that. We learned about it uh, through the media. And this kind of thing hasn't been done before in Canada. It's, it's pretty important. It's, it's pretty groundbreaking. So that had seismic reverberations through, through the medical community here. I, I can't overstate how much that was taken poorly. Uh, in March of 2020, we're also talking about COVID lockdown at this stage, right? Uh, the government institutes changes at that point as well to how physicians are paid. And so they're gonna say, well, we're gonna change the contract. We're just gonna do it and, and that's what it's gonna be. So they did a number of changes. Then most of those changes, from my perspective, targeted primary care. Uh, we, in primary care, lost the ability to um, uh, have more um, uh, remuneration for like taking on very complex patients. Uh, there was a planned discontinuation of being able to spend more time with patients. Uh, and they also did this thing called an encounter cap. And that's been in the media a little bit. Oh, you can't see more than X number of patients per day. It's not actually accurate. The encounter cap basically said, if you're a physician, you can't have more than 50 encounters per day, basically. So, you know, if I get called by a pharmacist or if I uh, speak to the phone with a specialist for advice uh, or if I answer a fax from long-term care, these are all encounters. And so that basically stopped us from being able to do uh, evening clinics. There were too many physicians who said, well, you know, I did too much today. I can't do more. And we couldn't ask the remaining physicians uh, to run as much walking as we were doing and COVID had a chilling effect on that too so this is my guess but in in polling different physicians around the 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 guess is that most um family doctors income may have dropped between 10 to 25 percent at that time um we were also doing virtual care as well which wasn't heavily supported by the government uh that's maybe a contentious statement but I, i'll stick to it um at that time, the AMA started talking about suing the government as well as this is very contentious, right? Because uh, the loss of some of the rights for arbitration, so I won't get into it too much. But uh, we go then to April 2020. The government turns around and makes a great fanfare of reversing some of these changes if you're in a rural place. Uh, and they said, look at all the wonderful things we're doing for rural medicine. And, you know, within a lot of those discussions were basically all the good things they had done at just reversing the bad things they had done a couple months earlier. That was frustrating for everybody. Uh, but, you know, Lethbridge not affected by that. We still have our cash. We still can't do our urgent care. We, we still have all the same issues. Um, at this time as well, this was absolute bizarro world. Uh, doctors basically had to create Twitter accounts to follow the health minister at that time 
to know what the terms of employment were going to be because this is how we would uh, this is how we would hear news right thursday evening there'd be something on uh, minister shatter's twitter page that would say oh i guess this is how things are now and then we'd hear about it through official channels the next week or two weeks later weird right mm -hmm. just kind of weird right um anyway i I, I wondered about how much to talk about this next thing, and I'm just going to mention it because some of the implications of it I don't think have really come yet, but I, I want people to watch for them a little bit. Uh, July of 2020 is where we're at in this story now. Bill 30 comes through. The government passes Bill 30, uh, or, or tables Bill 30. Uh, they talk about taking over the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Alberta. I don't want to get into it too much, but um, that's a regulatory body, and in most places, the physicians are, are self-regulating. Like if, if someone gets in trouble as a physician, it's other physicians that decide what should be done with them. Ultimately, this is a very simplistic way of putting it, but uh, the government taking over on that subject would, would had an extremely chilling effect, and just talking about it was concerning. You have to remember that uh, at, at a point in this process there was a physician who shared a meme on Facebook and had a health minister show up on his driveway yelling at him and his kids. Uh, that's not something that you would want running your regulatory college. Um, at this point though in Bill 30 there was discussion of more privatization of surgical facilities and a corporation could contract now this in the, in the, in the wording of this bill uh, to provide you with health care. Uh, previously only physician or physician organization can do that uh my problem with that of course is corporations don't take a hippocratic oath right and so they have different things that they want whereas we are designed to you know be patient oriented in that in that regard anyway uh over that time the alberta medical association is still trying to negotiate with the government being mainly ignored um shortly after uh, Health Minister Shandro writes the college and says, you know, if, if you leave your job, if you're particularly if you're rolling, you leave your job or, or threaten to leave your job, that's going to be considered job action. And you, of course, are not allowed to strike. So if you do that, uh, we will, um, you, you can't, we're going to force you to provide services. And if you want to leave, you have to find a replacement or this is the rumbling at that time. Uh, anecdotally, uh, in speaking with people who were coming out of where they had been trained, which is a bigger center usually, and they, they had been going to these smaller places to check it out or do locum work or do some training. That had an extremely chilling effect. And I said, well, what do you mean? If I want to set up here, I might not be able to leave if I still want to work in the province. Uh, if I have to set up here, I'm responsible for finding to someone, you know, to take over if, if I can't do it anymore. That, why would I, why would I do that? Why would I? Why would I do that to myself? So, um, it was an attempt to stop people who are currently there from leaving, but had a, uh, a quite a chilling effect on people who were looking at coming. Uh, by definition, quite quite short-sighted. So, um, July, uh, Bill Thirty goes into force. Uh, we get a Alberta Medical Association's uh, vote and confidence, non-confidence in the health minister. Ninety-eight percent of people who vote vote that they do not have confidence in the health minister. Zooming in a little bit to, to Lethbridge, particularly around this time, uh, we having we're having physicians 
leave. And and that's not unusual, right? This we have more than normal, I think, but there's always turnover. That's just the, the nature of things. Uh, we have some attrition due to health, uh, even death. We have uh, a, a couple of significant losses. Um, mention uh, is not a family physician, but Dr. Edwards, uh, we miss him greatly. And a Dr. Nassisi, uh, we miss him greatly as well. Uh, but, you know, very tragic losses, but also people just moving away. And for different reasons, some of them political, some of them not wanting to put up with things. And we have retirements as well. Um, but we're not replacing these doctors. They're not being replaced. Uh, nobody's coming. Um, the clinic undergoing more strain, my clinic uh, as well. Uh, all the virtual medicine we're doing has a, a decreased in income significantly for, for the clinic, which is a, a, a non-profit outfit basically, but it's starting to, to get strained. Uh, there's business disagreements between different physicians, a fracturing of opinions about you know, what to do about this. Meanwhile, um, the, the government makes uh, more noise about you know, taking over regulatory um, duties for the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Alberta. Um, as, as an aside, that's a red line for me. I, I would not work in, in, in such a in such a manner that that's that's non-negotiable for me. But um, as we get to September of 2020, the government starts talking about a sunshine list. Oh, we, we're going to push back against you uh, here by publishing everyone's income. When you see a sunshine list and it has, for example, a, a politician on it or something like that, that probably underestimates the income that that person has because it include benefits and pension. When you see a sunshine list with a physician, uh, that will overestimate their income because it's simply a gross income. Like the, the physician's uh, income is a business income. We have to pay for, you know, having the lights on, having staff here, um, using our, uh, you know, computer different programs, uh, insurance, all that kind of stuff. So that didn't go over very well with, uh, with physicians either. Um, and, um, Back in looking at Lethbridge at that point as well, the, the situation continued to fray, you know, the, with more financial uncertainty. Uh, physicians were moving from clinic to clinic, trying to find something different. Uh, still no new physicians. At, at a point a little while ago, I asked the University of Calgary, um, residency programs in different, in different functions to tell me a little bit of what they knew about new physicians. Like, where are these family medicine graduates going? Uh, unfortunately, they didn't have a whole lot of data. It's not, it's not a program to really watch these things. But from what I could glean, a lot of people were either, you know, shortly after training, they were leaving the province uh, or they were returning for um, further training, right? They're going to get pick up an additional year or two and different things just did not feel like the time that people wanted to set up a practice. This was the general uh, insight that I received when I, you know, made, made questions about that. Um, so, Roughly in October 2020, the College of Physicians and Surgeons reports that you know the, the amount of physicians is mainly stable. That was um, picked up by the media quite a bit, but it was not accurate because what that was is just just counting who had an active license. If you had an active license, uh, you may have left earlier that year, but your license is still there; it's still active. Um, there was a survey at that point that said about 42% of physicians were thinking about quitting or leaving Alberta uh, at that stage because of the, the environment that they were in. It was probably accurate. I think that that sounds about right in, in speaking to my colleagues. So we'll fast forward a little bit to 2021, um, just as a note, you know, vaccinations uh, coming out for, for COVID, that was, a, that was a huge deal. So there's one for the wind column, really. Uh, 
But then we get a tentative agreement reached with uh, between the Alberta Medical Association and the ministry. And so that sounds like a, a ray of light, sounds like stability coming forward. But you have to remember what I said about Bill 21. If the government doesn't like that contract later, they can cancel it again. There, there's, there's, there's no binding element to anything we sign. Uh, so the vote proceeds, 53% of people saying no. Now, I, I've met actually with the, the new health minister, um, who seems like a very reasonable gentleman and, and not likely to show up on my driveway. Uh, but he, um, I, I asked him, well, why, do, why do you think that was? And he thought for a minute, and to his credit, he gave us some thought. He said, well, I think it's, I think there's an element of anger there. I think probably he's right. Uh, furthermore, though, the, the fact that this was non-binding was a really a non-starter for a lot of people. It's just like, well, we... Well, who cares what's in it? Who cares what's in this agreement? Who cares if it provides stability? It doesn't actually provide stability because if you don't like it next month, it's gone. Mm. That's oversimplification, but that's how we felt. Uh, so the Alberta Medical Association after that returns to the table, even though there's no formal negotiations. Um, zooming into uh, Lethbridge a little bit in the, the summer to fall of 2021, you know, the, the clinic loses some critical mass. My clinic does, right? It, it survives barely, but we have to downsize uh, and remains vulnerable to this day. Now we're at roughly about 12 physicians. Uh, we don't have any after hours care. We're not doing any urgent care. Remember before I said we were doing 10 clinics a week, probably seeing maybe roughly by my back of the envelope calculations, 250 people uh, a, a week, often who had no family doctor. It was just a point of access that simply just isn't there anymore population hasn't gotten small, but the access has, has worsened across the board. Um, like I said, babies are being sent home without physicians from the hospital. I, I just think that's unreasonable. That's insanity. We, we should not be accepting that. Um, cancer patients, you know, knocking on our door. I, I need a, I need a doctor. I need a, that's, that's heartbreaking. Um, it should, should never have been allowed to get to this place. Right. Um, I would say I hear between two to five sad stories per day, and, and it's really a challenge. You do the best you can to help people access care, and, uh, but there's only so much we can do as individuals, of course. Um, by the end of 2021, the uh, physician numbers in, in Lethbridge of people who do roughly what I do have gone from 88 earlier to 69, and I suspect have dropped a little bit further since then as well. Uh, the end of 2021, Health Minister Shandro uh, is replaced with uh, Health Minister Copping. Uh, and uh, to his credit, uh, and our MLA's credit, actually hosted a number of family physicians at the end of the um, uh, at the end of uh, 2021. And um, you know, I, I don't know about the implications of that, but what I do know is that they did take the time to sit and listen. Uh, and I really respected that. Um, I was a little concerned that the the people there, uh, when asked about some things, weren't 100% sure themselves of the changes that the, the government had, the, of what they themselves had done. Uh, and some of that needed to be explained to them. So I, I had a fear that basically people were looking at spreadsheets and just Xing things out without knowing what exactly they were doing. Um, Regardless, uh, so that brings us pretty much to today. That brings us to where we are now, uh, which is maybe more of a stable place compared to the next uh, or compared to the last uh, um, two years, roughly. Um, I hope, but uh, but not um, not out of the woods by any means. 
Uh, and I think a lot of what's going to happen next will, will make a big difference in, in how we go from here. Uh, I want to point out a couple of things, though, the, the, the reiterating the, the benefits of primary care here. We have to remember that it's cheapest. It's, it's the cheapest, most cost-effective health care that we have. Uh, so if, if you've got an issue and you come in and you see your family doctor, it'll cost, you know, to have the lights on and the computer system and all the people who different, they see you, it'll cost about $40 to the system. If that same patient goes to the emergency room, the starting cost is 10 times that. 10 times that. So again, I, you know, I hate pointing to this, you know, late night urgent walk-in or, or night clinics that we're running. It'd have two, 250 people per, per week. Even if 15, 20, 30 percent of those people will filter over to the ER, and I suspect it's that higher, higher. Uh, that's a net significant loss in both access, and it's a net increase in cost. But uh, to remind people, there's a, there's a foundational benefit there to the health of a society and the health of individuals within it to have robust primary care. Uh, the government needs to be talking about that more. Uh, if they're talking about increasing ICU bed capacity, the next sentence should be, and then what we're going to do about the primary care problem. Um, the, you know, keeping you out of, and your family out of the emergency room, keeping you out of the hospital, uh, stopping little cancers from becoming big cancers, uh, improving mental health so that it, the first time it shows up isn't with a suicide attempt, right? These are, these are, this is what we're talking about here. We're not talking about family doctors. We're talking about those things, deeply important things. Um, had a bit of an informal poll with uh, with with my colleagues, um, and I said, you know, well, why were the majority of the cuts the government made to to primary care? The majority of what they did were aimed at the people like like us sitting in clinics like these. Um, the 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 answers were basically boiled down to two things: uh, either the government didn't know what it's doing, uh, or it did, and it's trying to destabilize things prior to attempt at privatization. But ultimately, we're guessing. We don't really know because they haven't told us. So, like I said, I wasn't gonna have a conclusion here. I'm not gonna be able to say, look, this is this is the three main points. It's, it's just a story. It's just a story of where we are. And uh, uh, and I'm not the main character in it. Uh, you know, things don't look that different for me now. The main characters are my patients and, and the more importantly, the patients that I used to be able to see and now I'm not. Uh, the, the patients who had a family doctor here now don't. So I hope if if me talking about this has helped shed any light on that, that that helps somebody. Um, I did put the call out with a couple of questions uh, to a number of different colleagues and just said, well, do you have any perspectives here? So if I've got about a minute left or so, I'm just gonna mention, uh, go over what, a, a few things of what they said. So one person says, uh, you know, to fix this, Alberta Health can allow a mandate to recruit international medical graduates. Okay, yeah. Uh, Alberta Health needs to come to an agreement with physicians and the general tone of communication needs to change to be more conciliatory. Trust is broken and needs to be carefully rebuilt. All right. Um, another person. Uh, I think the healthcare system is undermining the future of family medicine in Alberta. I think government needs to start uh, reimbursing specialists way less and starts, needs to start paying family physicians more. They have financially disincentivized family medicine. This is leading people to not want to do family medicine residency at all. And from what we've seen in the last three to four years, those who are doing a family medicine residency are doing a third year in ER anesthesia and therefore never working as family doctors. Um, the pay scale is uh, misaligned. For example, I can make $5,000 in a 24-hour shift in, in the hospital or ER in a weekend. That's what I make in a full week working family medicine. But where we struggle to staff our clinic, 
pay our rent, purchase supplies, and we work all evening doing paperwork to care for people um, that, in very difficult situations. Uh, family medicine requires struggling with difficult people and difficult problems for months and years on end. Uh, the system is backwards. Um, another person. Uh, what would have been helpful for the clinic uh, is probably stable funding and making phone visits equivalent to regular office visits. That would have reduced the intensity of the discussions uh, and improved collegiality. Unfortunately, I think the government has burned bridges in its treatment of physicians. Few of us feel, feel valued, especially family doctors. All right. Uh, another physician. Um, the bigger issue in, in the long run is comprehensive care, the willingness of physicians to take on more and more difficult patients. We need to be very vocal how the early 2020 changes messed up the motivation to do that kind of practice. Um, another person, you know, Lethbridge had a larger number of near retirement physicians also, which added to the storm as many were scheduled to retire and the rest decided to step out early. Okay, yeah, that, that's, a, that's a great point. I didn't really touch on that too much, but I, I think uh, Lethbridge just had some vulnerabilities that just, we just got unlucky with that. And that's probably true as well. Um, not another person, um, you know, problem is that there's not a lot of doctors out there who are prepared to take on the responsibility, stress and burden of a, a family physician practice. Uh, for sure not with the uh, with the current uncertainties. We may have to step outside the box for more immediate help for people without doctors. Government may have to step up and make clinic space with staff to allow new doctors to work on a locum basis to test the waters. Doctors may be willing to trial practice here if they don't have to take on the burden commitment of overhead initially and, and so on. So, yeah, so you know, I got a number of responses, a whole bunch of things that I didn't respond to, but those are kind of a, a little sampling of, of, of some of the um, input from people. So, yeah, I'm, I'm very happy to take some questions. I don't know uh, if people have any. I don't even know if I'm going to have excellent answers, um, but you know, I'm happy to hear them. Thank you, uh, Dr. Samuel. That's um, a very informative talk. Um, we have lots of questions, so I'm going to jump right oh, okay. in. Yeah, Ian Hurdle, yearly third, <laughs> yearly third quarter family doctor numbers are a combination of Oops, sorry, it just jumped out of my screen. Let me start again. Yearly third quarter family doctor numbers are a combination of new doctors starting and ones leaving whose licenses lapse at year end. In 2019, plus 35. In 2020, plus 75. In 2021, minus 30, meaning a real loss of 165. What are your comments on that? That's fair. I, I would also say that, you know, what I really want from um, government in terms of data, and, and I don't think they give us, like, if we can do better than that, actually, we government can tell us who's actually working, who's actually working, who's seeing patients, they have that information. Um, but I've not been able to dig that up. I, and I think the rest is just kind of guessing, you know, there's a lot of people who keep license. I know doctors who have moved to uh, out of province, but kept a license. They're not working here, right? So these are just ways of, to, to be able to estimate things. What, what I can tell you, uh, the best data that I have comes from our primary care network uh, here, uh, is that the, the, the numbers of patients actively working has, has dropped with great significance, uh, as high as 30% or higher within our primary care network zone, which includes, you know, Lethbridge, Tabor, uh, out to Crow's Nest Pass, down to Milk River, these kinds of areas. That's a massive loss and it takes a long time to rebuild. The The post-Klein uh, era kind of showed us that, that you know, you can destroy something very quickly. To build it back up takes a lot of intentionality and a lot of time. Um, what was distressing to me is that politicians were coming and saying, well, this is how many family doctors there are. And their numbers were 
insanely off. They were clearly counting license of doing people with license doing very different things or not working at all. Uh, people who are, uh, you know, if, if, if you have the same credentials as me, but you work only in, for example, a wound clinic, doing very important work, but you're not doing primary care, you're being counted in, in, in their numbers. They have the ability to know better than that, to know who's actually doing the work that they're interested in. Uh, so I, I, uh, that was that was one of my frustrations looking at that. The next question comes from Beth Mundo. There have been fewer residency positions in Alberta than students graduating or graduated from med school for ages. So Alberta sends to other provinces for residencies. So the boy, it's a really complex complex thought, right? It, um, we we have at different times in in medical schools had um, you know by the year there's sometimes open places for family medicine which is uh, what I'm most interested in. You have to remember too that uh, Alberta has two medical schools. Other places uh, are are not uh, as richly blessed with medical schools as we are. Um, I I don't know how much of an opportunity can be gleaned from that because I think that's probably where you're going with that question like what could we do here that would be different uh, one of the things in speaking to the um, rural uh, uh, coordinator of the University of Calgary you know rural medicine which is the the residency I, I graduated with like rural family medicine uh, is is that there's talk of of having more satellite residency type experiences uh, outside of the major centers and I can only suggest that that's a really good idea um, to you know I, it's hard enough for family medicine but special specialties are like this as well if, if you live for a long period of time at this at the stage of your life when you're in medical school and residency there's a good chance you're you've got kids and they're in school already by the time you're done. Uh, so to move to a place that's underserved at that time is a significant uprooting for you. Um, I think there are opportunities there without a doubt. Like I said, I'm not speaking on behalf of any uh, medical school here. No. Ian Hurdle has, <laughs> has a second question. In the 50s and 60s, 50% of doctors came from the UK. In the 70s and 80s, 40% of surgeons trained went to US, followed in the 80s by lots of new and jobless RNs. Are we losing our next generation of health workers? Mm. I, I, well, I'll speak to family medicine. I think, I think family medicine is in trouble. Health workers more generally, I, I think we could have that talk. It would probably take a long time and, and have a lot of conjecture. But what I'll speak on is, is family medicine. I, I find that when I was in medical school, there was this push to say, yeah, well, you should do family medicine. Family medicine is, is valued over time. Uh, I'm not sure if I see that same thing. I, you know, if you're if you're in medical school at the moment, you think, well, um, I can do something that is, is different. I'll specialize, and I feel like I'm a little bit higher on the totem pole. I feel like uh, I'll, I'll make more money. I'll have more prestige, uh, and and they're not wrong. The the people who who feel that way. The problem with that is that, like I said, the evidence for family medicine is really, really robust. Um, I, I personally have a couple of ideas about what could probably be done a little bit differently about the residency and how we could, um, you know, emphasize some different things with it. Um, but but that's that's my fear is that, 
you know, we're going to we're going to be looking at something in, in the long term here that is um, pretty seismic for, for primary care, which we should care about a whole lot more than we do. We take it for granted uh, because it's not interesting enough. We don't know what it is until it's gone. I think people are starting to realize that now. I hope they're starting to realize that now. Um, I, do, I don't know. I don't. Sorry, that's a long way of saying I'm not going to give you an answer, Ian. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, our next question comes from Leona Jacob. What do you know about and what do you think about the city's, the city of Lethbridge's intention to engage in doctor recruitment? Uh, I, I know it was talked about in, in the campaign, in, in, in the campaign from several people. Um, Lethbridge is a good place to work. Lethbridge can recruit itself. You know, uh, we're we're close to the mountains. We we've you know, and I, I spoke to another physician who said traditionally, you're not going to get too much sympathy talking. You know, being from Lethbridge, uh, to to some of the other um, you know, it's not remote, but you know, these population centers and other areas that aren't the big cities. Um, you know, Lethbridge is is close close to the mountains. It's got lots of amenities. It's it's a good place to be. The the problem, I think, is more structural for for. Um, Alberta, and if Alberta does well, Lethbridge will do well, and it's the the problem can be tied back to like how and where we're we're treating our residents. If that goes well, Lethbridge will do well. Um, if if we can, um, the, the okay. So the problem is that Lethbridge doesn't really have the ability to do to to address the problems that we're talking about. You know, is Lethbridge going to campaign for contract stability for physicians? It's kind of outside of its mandate, right? Um, so I, I think it it comes across as as a, a nice thing to say. I, I just don't know what it can mean really in concrete fashion to to kind of address the the issues at hand. Unless Lethbridge wants to get into the business of building brick and mortar clinics and staffing them, which I don't think is a pathway that uh, most municipalities would want to go down. Okay. Our next question comes from Laurie Schultz. In a Lethbridge article this week, the Honorable Grant Hunter, UCP MLA for Tabor, stated there was not a shortage of doctors in Alberta, that it was an urban slash rural distribution problem of doctors. Hunter spoke of a rural program that was to be implemented. Lethbridge would not be eligible for this program. What are your comments? I'm very tempted to just decline the question because I don't want to get myself into trouble. But you know, at different times, um, the the rhetoric from politicians would be like, "Oh, this is not a problem. This is not a problem." And and people know if they have a problem or not. People know if they can't go see their doctor. So I, I would advise you to take anything. You know, you people know what their own situation is, right? And if you don't have a doctor to go to, you have a problem. You have a problem. Um, these are the same groups, people who called our situation in Lethbridge a micro situation. This is just rhetoric uh, that, that I don't have much time for. And um, you can see that people are, 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 are flinging things out of the wall to seeing what will stick to try to um, dissociate themselves from uh, what may be going on here. The the concern, of course, is and what the government has tried to do is to say, well, you know, we can solve that problem by just offering people that they can only work where they where, where we have a need. Right. So, well, there's not going to be any more. Uh, you, you can't 
start work as a family doctor in Calgary because we have enough family doctors there. Okay, you know, it makes sense, right? You can, if you want to start working, you can work in these five communities. Okay, you know, logically that makes some sense. The problem is it's been tried before in different provinces and it didn't help. It didn't help. Um, so I, I don't want to be saying you must trust the free market in terms of, you know, where labor goes to, to a need, but um, the alternative hasn't seemed to work any better. Uh, and that's probably all I'll say about that because I don't want to ruffle feathers the wrong way, but I would I would just suggest don't don't let politicians tell you if there's a problem or not. You you can you know yourself. Okay, our next question, uh, another question for Laura Schultz, is the encounter cap still in place? Oh yeah, unless I've missed some massive announcement in the last little while. I, and this is conceptually, I didn't really mind the encounter cap. I mean. If, if if I get to the place where I'm seeing like a lot of people, I, I'm like, well, you know, for me personally, that's that's a struggle. And I'm, it's probably just not going to affect me too much. Where it does affect me, though, and where it would have affected me and did affect me is once every two weeks or so, uh, I would have dinner and then I would come back here and I'd see a bunch of people in the evening with other issues. And that was OK because I didn't do it all the time. Right. And I would do it on, you know, at, at, at different times. And so I felt that I would be able to work as my best self as a physician um, and occasionally on certain days stretch myself quite a bit. The government can't be too concerned about it because they said, well, it doesn't count if you're in a rural place. So if you're in a rural place, physicians are, I don't know, are different, I guess, that, that they they work fine after working a lot. And so that that's fine. But it's not OK for us here. So. Um, Conceptually, I didn't, I didn't mind it, but the 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 implications have been fairly profound, I would say. With with that, uh, I did ask a number of my colleagues. I said, "Well, if they lifted that, because this is the this is some of the rhetoric too. If we lift the encounter cap, can you all see more patients? That would be how we get out of this mess." Um, I would say ninety five percent of the people that I asked uh, who who work in Lethbridge here said, "I can't." either uh, mostly because I'm too tired mostly I'm too tired I just I, I'm I'm not capable uh, of of doing more even if we were able to open up evening or, or we you know clinics or something like that at this point I, I don't have the I don't have the strength to do them ultimately okay. and, and you know that that's that's sad too of hmm. course Mark Goodall is ER now taking place taking place of primary care for those without a yeah. family physician yeah yeah and, yeah and if so how are how are they coping and is it not costing the government more such a good question i i would love to provide you with the data to really back up what i'm going to say so i'm going to i'm going to give you kind of some half answers here we know that uh, numbers of visits to the emergency room haven't spiked quite to the degree that we would have thought of. Uh, anecdotally, the reason for that, as far as I can tell, is in, in speaking to my own patients, is that people are terrified to go. People are terrified to go to the, to the emergency room. Um, you know, I've had patients uh, almost miss blood clots in their lungs and, and things like that because they just did not want to go there, either because they have a feeling that the wait times are egregious. That, you know, we could have a debate about that, of course, uh, or that they're going to get coronavirus. It's a big, scary place that we're going to get coronavirus. Um, 
so we have a lot of talk with with people about when to go to the ER, and the ER is a fantastic resource, and we need to use it in certain circumstances. Uh, in speaking to an ER colleague or two of mine, there is some of that. There is some people going in. I need my prescriptions, and or you know, can you help me with this and that? But the ER is not really set up to do what we do. They're not set up to do cancer screenings and and uh, periodic assessments and and you know, kind of the slow, hard grinding work of walking through uh, depressive uh, or mental health crises or something like that. Um, that stuff is filtering into the emergency room. It's not the right place for it. Uh, you're going to get, um, not to say that my ER colleagues aren't capable of doing it, it's just the, the system and the structure is, is not right. It's not right for doing it. So I think what we're going to see more of is people going to their pharmacists to, you know, get refills of the same medications that they've been on, even though they don't have a family doctor anymore, and the pharmacy will, you know, check their blood pressure, uh, to, to just skating along until we can do something better. That kind of thing is that it, you know, people will be using the, um, uh, the, that TELUS product, it used to be called Babylon. Uh, that that sort of thing, uh, we'll, we'll have just these bandaging patchwork uh, changes here. Uh, one of my colleagues did point out that, you know, when a lot of family doctors left Lethbridge, they gave people as much medications as they could. You know, well, you've got diabetes, you've got hypertension, you've got depression, you've got whatever. Uh, I'm going to give you a year of medication. And for a lot of those people, that year is coming up. Um, what are we going to do? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. Um, okay. So, great question. I, I I can't answer it well enough, but it is it's on my mind for sure. Clint Peterson, private healthcare is arguably the aim of the UCP ideology, and the best way for them to make it happen is to undermine public health. What are your thoughts on that? That's actually the thought of a lot of my colleagues. I I don't really know how I feel about it because I I, I try to put myself in other people's shoes. Like, well, what what does that mean exactly? This is why I brought up Bill 30 there. I think it just bears close watching. But people do have to remember, too, that, you know, what does privatized mean? So this clinic that I'm sitting in right now, this is private health care. You know, I'm a physician who subcontracts with solely with the government. That's what I do. And that all physicians in, look like that to, to some degree. But the clinic is supported privately. It's, this is not an HS facility. Most places that people go to get health care from a, you know, primary care are private clinics so uh or, or privately held they're they're non-profit outfits for the most part right that are that that just support the place uh when i spoke with the, the health minister in december he had said well, well maybe one of the things that could be done is that you know business interests could could you know help as you know my colleague sitting next to me was like oh like what does that mean what does that mean do you mean that like a business would take over the running of our clinics but would be for profit and what would that business be who would that be and why is that any better than what we have now it's only better than what we have now if the game uh, the rules are are changed so that um it's more profitable for that business to operate and that's you know I, i'm not going to tinfoil hat it further than that here though i i'm trying to trying to stay my best in the here and now um but i think that the, the general person has a, a bit of a misconception about how the system even works um so maybe instead right. of calling it private private we should call it for profit yeah. sure yeah i think that's that would be appropriate yeah and and, and who's able to actually contract for uh, with the government to provide health care right are you are you uh 
a business that can then say, well, we're going to provide health care to these 8,000 people and we'll do it however we see fit and the government will pay us because that's new. Like that might be a problem. I I, I just, I, I feel that that has some potential drawbacks, right? Uh, because that wasn't allowed until recently. You know, I'm not a legal expert. I'm, I'm not a politician and don't ask me to break down different bills and all these kinds of things, but that's, that's what I see there. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, Ian Hurdle. We finally trained enough doctors to start filling rural spots adequately mm. in, the, in, mm. in, in 2000, but now seem to seem to rapidly leaving for elsewhere. Yeah. What are your comments on that? I, it, it's, it's just ultra sad. Mm. Uh, when I speak to my friends who uh, work a little more rurally than I do, um, you know, Lethbridge has problems. I, th- I think will ha- has potential for solutions that that aren't really on the table for some of these smaller outfits and these smaller communities. Uh, I worry about them losing services. I worry about them losing the critical mass to, to work. I worry about the people working there right now getting burned out. Um, you cannot go for a really long period of time and not have good conditions to attract physicians there because. Uh, if, if you lose a critical mass, you just won't be able to, for example, have an emergency room open consistently. You won't be able to deliver babies in a place. Uh, so you're really flirting with some disaster there. And, and once that's gone, to build it up from nothing is, uh, I don't I don't want to do that. That's That sounds terrible. Um, huge okay. problem. Okay. Uh, Bridge City News. What does having limited primary care mean for catching long-term illnesses early and then in brackets, cancer, etc., and perhaps saving lives? Not perhaps, for sure. Absolutely saving lives. And we know that. I mean, there's research that, that, that states that the, the loss of robust primary care costs lives and it increases costs. Uh, it leads to more poor health outcomes. It, it increases hospitalizations. It increases ER visits. Um, it, it, it and, and when I say increased costs, I'm talking both financially and, and in years of life. You know, if, if you are somebody who's not having, well, I don't know, I'll choose something, colon, uh, colon cancer screening, right? Simple screening to do, but you have to be in the system to get done. You have to have a medical home that will do it. Uh, we know that appropriate colorectal cancer screening saves lives if you do it across population. There are lives saved when we do it, when we do it well. If people don't have a medical home, there's a the the, the 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 pie chart of people who are getting cancer screening done, and you can extend this to diabetes screening and mental health and whatever you want. Um, but in in terms of getting this specific kind of screening done, just gets smaller and smaller and smaller. The amount of the the, the pie uh, piece of pie of the people who are actually getting the work done decreases, and so there's some inequity there too. That is, that is a problem. I haven't really even gone into that. So who gets a family doctor right now and who doesn't? But if you're part of the pie who doesn't get that screening, most people probably okay, right? But occasionally you're going to get someone who died or get a really significant illness that didn't have to, that didn't have to. And why we're not talking about that right now is very frustrating because we're talking a lot about ICU capacity. Uh, we're talking about that two years into a, a COVID pandemic, and we're saying, well, the solution to that is to have way more ICU capacity into the future. We need to be thinking about what's coming up in the next five years. And we're talking about getting knee replacements faster. Fine. Yeah. But let's also talk about this. 
because it's not going to matter to a lot of people until it's them or someone they love and, and have, having a bad outcome because of uh, something that should have been done but it wasn't. Okay. Next question comes from uh, Pat Williams. Nurse practitioners can play an important role in primary care. Has anything changed in the ability of clinics to pay NPs? Mm, yeah, that's a good question. Uh, and you're absolutely right. Nurse practitioners can play a really critical role. There's a lot happening in that world here in Alberta right now. Uh, I'm not an expert in it, and so I'm going to defer a little bit here. Uh, but if I walk down the hall right now, I can go talk to our nurse practitioner here who is supported by what's called our primary care network. And so at the moment, um, there's a big discussion happening in Alberta about the capacity of a nurse practitioner to hold their own patient panel to provide primary care. My own opinion on it is that like a lot of things, these things work best in a team. So for my, uh, for the nurse practitioner that I work with, she does a little bit of primary care, but a lot of diabetes management and some of these other things. And it just works like an absolute charm. Without uh, without the person I'm thinking of, we'd be far, I'd, I'd be able to see far fewer patients and do it much less well. Uh, integrating people like this into the into the team is going to be critical. Uh, I know that the the health minister and and that area are are very interested in this. Um, I, I'm 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 just kind of waiting to hear more uh, at the moment. Um, I, I think there's great potential there to to make uh, primary care more robust, and we've done that. We've done that here uh, in this clinic for sure. Uh, so I, I'm I'm looking forward to see what the future holds there. Bridge City News. You mentioned talking to Health Minister Copping about the current status of physician shortages here in Lethbridge. What are some of your ideas for ways to recruit and retain physicians to the city? Uh, You know, a a colleague of mine actually, you know, I, I asked that exact question to many colleagues and I asked it in writing and said, tell me what you think. Um, I think the best answer I got and the one I resonate with the most is that uh, this needs to be, uh, you know, the the issues with it are systemic and because of that they're province-wide. If those issues become addressed, Lethbridge should do fine. Lethbridge should do fine. but there's there's a there's a lot of issues and, and there's a lot stacked against us at the moment. Uh, I, I don't know about the capacity of, of the city itself uh, to do recruitment. I, I, I you know no one's asked me to sit on any committees nor do I have a lot of time to do such things. Uh, but uh, I, every every idea that I come up with sort of butts up against uh, what the capacity of a, a specific municipality actually is to do some of these things. Um, and does it want to set precedent for some of these things? I, I, I'm not sure of the answers to those things. It's, good. it's, a, it's a really good question. It is, I think, the question, really. Um, one, we could see with, that, with, with the coal mining issue, right? There were different mayors who reached out and said, you know, we absolutely are opposed to this issue. It's going to affect our main source of, of drinking water and so on. And, you know, this is not a coal mining talk, obviously. But that had, um, that, that made some waves, I think, right? And so I think if the, the members of a, a city uh, government and otherwise reach out to the people who are uh, able to deal with some of the issues that I've been talking about. 
um, that that will have implications. Mm-hmm. Silence doesn't get you anything. Okay, um, I'm realizing we're quickly running out of time, so I'm going to skip a few questions and ask my last question. Um, Dinesh with Arana, access to primary care workforce. Did I mess that up? Sorry. No, 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 no. It's fine. Oh, okay. Access to primary care workforce improves patient outcomes and decreases healthcare utilization, such as emergency room visits, hospitalization, and remissions, and healthcare costs. Family physicians provide the overwhelming majority, around 70% in Alberta, of all healthcare visits in Alberta and Canada. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Adding family physicians to a population improves health outcomes greater than any other physician physician group. That's um, true. Yeah. So um, she goes on. But anyway, your comments, please. Uh, the, that's all true. That's all true. Uh, you know that there's not simple switches to make these things happen, but there are systemic reasons uh, and cultural reasons why um, new graduates are not doing as much of this. Uh, there's reasons why uh, it's it's fraying as badly as it has. Uh, I hope in the talk that I've given, I've gone over some of those reasons, and then the, you know people can draw their own conclusions as to what should be done about it. Um, but it's it's so complex. It's so complex, but it doesn't really need to be, you know, just like anybody who wants to work in a job. What do they want? They, they want stability. They want to be able to go to their job, have fun with it, because medicine is a fun job, usually, yeah. not always, but uh, they don't want to spend all their time worrying about following, like I said earlier, the health minister on Twitter so they can know what they have to do, you know, what the conditions of their employment are the next day. You know, that's that's not fun. That's not good. We, we need to be able to demand a little bit better. We need to be able to demand some stability here. But like I said, the, the main, um, yeah, the, the, the main character of this story uh, is, are the patients, is the people who don't have a, a place to go. And that's got to be fixed. That's got to be fixed. And the people who have the capacity to fix it know what to do and they need to be asked to do it. Great. Thank you so much. Before we wrap up, and I'm I'm keenly aware of your time here, Doctor. Before we wrap up, um, do you have a take-home message for our viewers? Uh, don't don't take um, don't take primary care for granted. We need to work together to fight for it. Um, we in in family medicine, we we hear you. We hear the people calling out for help. Uh, we're doing uh, what we can. We're doing our, our, our best to do what we can at the moment. Uh, make sure you call for help to the people who have the power to, to do some helpful things. Uh, and uh, I have my fingers crossed that it's it'll get better. Uh, but, you know, it, it, a lot of it is out of my hands. Um, but but don't take primary care for granted. We need to we need to cherish what we got. We need to make it stronger and better and always, uh, always advancing rather than regressing. Well, excellent. Thank you. On behalf of SACPOD, there's lots of thank yous in the queue. I'd like to read some out to you. Thank you for your presentation and providing context for how Lethbridge Primary Care is where it is today by Laurie Schultz, Ian Hurdle. Uh, thanks, Sam. Keeps your chin up. Um, great work, Dr. Davala. Well-spoken and thoughtful. Uh, thank you for your great talk. I agree wholeheartedly that stability for the province is what will help Lethbridge 
any agreement with the AMA needs to specifically show tangible sorry for primary care. And on behalf of SACPA, thank you very much. Um, folks, next week, we have a session on Tuesday evening. So we're really changing up times here. Tuesday evening, March 1st at 7 p.m., we have Dr. Maura Williams from uh, Australia. She is joining us from Australia, the fight to end Australian coal mining. I hope you'll join us then. Thanks very much.